please be seated and turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this starting on page 643, page 643, and continuing on to page 645. It's on your, it's, uh, on your large print sheets as well. But in your pew Bible, page 643, continuing on to 644, and 645. Ezra, Ezra chapter 7. Reading this chapter in its entirety, Ezra chapter 7. My friends, this is the word of God. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzai, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon. And he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all of those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priest, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100,000 
thousand, excuse me, 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let execute it speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged, as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Well, beloved people of God, today we consider Ezra chapter 7, the first of two sermons on this text as we continue our series in this wonderful and intriguing book of Ezra. And in this we see that God enables Ezra to return to Jerusalem. God enables Ezra to return to Jerusalem. Now, as we come to chapter 7, this is the first part of the second section of Ezra. So if we were thinking about a play, perhaps, we would say Act 1, chapters 1 through 6. Act 2, chapters 7 through 10, with many scenes, of course, different scenes to be sure, but in a sense two distinct Acts, one, chapters 1 through 6, chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 1 through 6, we saw the temple rebuilding, the rebuilding of the temple. You remember that there was opposition, and the people were discouraged, chapter 4, and they gave up, and then who came along? Uh, Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets who came along and stirred up the people, said, Focus on heaven. Don't focus on, on material goods like putting, putting money into bags with holes. I'll mention it once again. We have a number of young people with us today. So young people, if you, if you had a, a bag and you had a hole in the bottom of it, how many coins do you think you'd have left if, if you just put those coins in the bag? Not very many. And it would be very foolish, wouldn't it? As you carry around that bag, you're so you're grasping that bag. You're so proud of it, and that's the figure that the prof, that the prophet Haggai uses. And so, in all of those things, then the the priests then are stirring up the people, and saying, "Get your priorities straight. Go back to work." And as we saw in chapters five and six, that's it. And God blessed that, uh, despite the threat. They took names, literally. They took names of these people leading this. Sounds like bureaucrats, you know. They're taking names. And yet, by the grace of God, the temple was dealt with a period of about 21 years, from 536 to 515 B.C., before Christ. So 536 to 515 B.C., and of course, you know, when we talk about B.C., then, as you, uh, the, the more recent dates, 
go down, don't they? Because they're headed to the, the coming of Christ. So 536 to 515 BC. Now we're about 57 years later, chapters 7 through 10. So this is 458 BC, about 57 years, just over half a century later. This is when Ezra, after whom this book is named, and presumably he was the author of it, we're not certain of that, but in any case, this is now where Ezra appears on the scene as he returns with others to Jerusalem. Of course, during this time, as we've already mentioned, people, the people were persecuted. Some apostatized, went away from the faith. Others were discouraged and at least for a time gave up building. But nevertheless, nevertheless, they still were able to finish that. And now there is this this group of migrants, we could say, folks going back into, migrating back into the promised land. Now, a couple of technical notes here. First thing is that if you want to look at Ezra's line, you see here in the first few verses, it talks about his... um, uh, his uh, predecessors, his forebears, and you can see uh, a parallel to that in First, First Chronicles 6, verses 3 through 15, but very much showing, of course, that he was in that line. Secondly, I've mentioned before that uh, starting in, uh, back in uh, a previous section, uh, that there was a whole section in Ezra that was written in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is a language that is similar to Hebrew. It has certain similarities to it. Uh, in seminary a long time ago, I took a course on Aramaic. The, uh, a lot of it is, as I said, a lot of similarity. The endings are, are a little bit different, but the vocabulary is very similar. And so there are certain portions then that are written in Aramaic. And a lot of this uh, here in Ezra has to do with these official documents, such as this letter that we will see from King Artaxerxes to Ezra. So verses 12 through 26 are written in Aramaic. Now in the past, we've talked about a number of interesting themes We've talked about the idea of a godly line, the preservation of that godly line, and that's certainly a theme we have today in terms of Ezra, the Ezra himself here in chapter 7, and so something that obviously is very important, and also the people themselves being brought back into the land. Secondly, uh, there is the whole idea of church-state relations. We hope to deal with that today as well. Uh, even as we mentioned last time. And then thirdly, of course, overarching it, as is the case with Scripture as a whole, is the idea of grace. It is the idea of grace. Because it's ultimately not in our own strength that we get things done. But it's because, as we see here in Ezra 7, it was because of the hand of the Lord God. That was upon Ezra, and of course that is by God's grace upon us. Now as we look at chapter 7, then there are four basic points, two of which we'll deal with today, and two of which we'll deal, Lord willing, next week. So preparation, people, purpose, and praise. Preparation, people, purpose, and praise. And there will be some overlap, as we'll see. Uh, uh, Look, for example, particularly verse 10. I've put that under purpose, but it also has to do with the preparation. But there are other verses as well that talk about the the preparation of Ezra himself as a man uh, and uh, as a man of God. So, Today, then, first of all, this is going to be the bulk of the message, preparation for Ezra's return. Preparation for Ezra's return. The first thing we see here is a long line of godly descendants, a long line of 
godly descendants. Now, what a strength this is. And I know that many of us are grateful for the fact that we have children that are walking with the Lord. I mentioned I was speaking with um, one of my cousins I had not spoken with for a long time, uh, just yesterday. And she was able to affirm that not only she, but her two sisters and all the children involved, as far as I could tell, are all working with, all walking with the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We should work for that. And so there's a lot of strength, and that's what we find here too. But the, the particular point then is that Ezra was a direct descendant of Aaron. So you see here, you, you see that's what it says. The, uh, for example, verse 5, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, this Ezra. And being a direct descendant of Aaron, therefore he had the right to act as a priest and to institute certain reforms. Now, no priest, we are told, can become one on his own. No priest can take the mantle of this office upon himself. He needed divine appointment. And Ezra, therefore, in a sense, is a picture of Christ, who himself was appointed by his father to be our great high priest. So a long line of godly descendants as sort of a, a precondition almost, at least in this, in this setting here. But then we look at Ezra himself. As I said, this Ezra. And Ezra, by the way, is a shortened form of Azariah. The Lord has helped. Sort of a nickname. Azariah. The Lord has helped. This Ezra. And, of course, he is one who came, verse 6, came up from Babylon. Now, what was his duty then? Well, notice what it tells us here. Um, he, was, he was a ready or a skilled scribe. A ready or a skilled scribe. Verse 6, and he was a skilled scribe. In the law of Moses, which the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, God of Israel had given. Verse 11, Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Verse 12, Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. And verse 21, and I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issued a decree to all the treasures who are in the region beyond the river, that's the Euphrates River, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, they require of you, let it be done diligently. So what's the significance then of this terminology? Well, he was one who was able to interpret the law because he was skillful. He was one who was able to interpret the law. He had the skills necessary to do that. As a matter of fact, the, the whole idea of being skilled points to highest efficiency, a professional of the highest order. Now, some of us are professional in certain things. Some of us are professional in the law. Some of us are, are uh, professional in the chemistry lab. Uh, some of us can be skilled in any number of other things. But when you're skilled in it, when you're a professional, you know what you're doing. And that's exactly what we find here with regard to this Ezra. And of course, our desire then should be to seek out those who can more fully explain God's law. And so... You want to make sure that you are learning from people uh, who don't think that they're skilled because they stayed in Holiday Inn Express last night, right? Rather, that they actually are skilled in terms of Scripture and particularly is skilled in terms of the law. So Ezra himself, a for his return. 
Then notice verses 8 and 9, the plan, the plan. And Ezra uh, came to Jerusalem. Verse 9, he began his journey from Babylon. Now, he could have gone, they could have gone 500 miles right across the desert. Um, but that's not likely. Most likely they would have gone sort of like what's called the Fertile Crescent, uh, that is to say up and around uh, by means of what today we would call Syria. Notice the dates that are here with regard to this plan. The first of Nisan, the first of Nisan, April 8th. And so he began the first day of the first month, April 8th, we would say, according to that calendar. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, the first of Ab, A-B, or August 4th. And this is in the seventh year of the king, that is to say the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes. This is why we're able to tell what year this is, 515 BC. Now notice also though, we're going to be spending a bit of time with this, as part of the, of the preparation was this decree, this letter, this document, this authorization that was given to Ezra by King Artaxerxes. It was a letter, a diplomatic note. It was addressed to Ezra. Notice how he's identified in verse 11, Ezra the priest. And of course, being a priest, and in that priestly line, there's a particular concern for the sacrifices. All those sacrifices, I mean, that's the point of the temple. Our Orthodox Presbyterian brethren some years ago produced a, a little tract that said, have you ever worshipped in a Greek temple? And of course the point was that so many churches, modernist churches, refused to talk about the cross and the propitiation, the propitiatory sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, Jesus taking the wrath of God upon himself and paying for our sins with his blood. Have you ever worshipped in a Greek temple? There are many people in Atlanta that have worshipped in a Greek temple because there's no cross. There's no sacrifice in any significant sense. As a matter of fact, sometimes absolute heresy in terms of this absolute denial of this doctrine and certainly ignoring of the doctrine but the point of course is that the forgiveness of sins requires sacrifice it requires blood and all of those all of those animals that were sacrificed in the temple were pointing forward to the lamb of god were pointing forward to the one true sacrifice of jesus at the cross. And so we find then, by being a priest, he would, had particular concern for the sacrifices. But also, he is identified as a scribe. Now, you know what, if we talk about a scribe or script, it refers to that which is written. And so written ideas are in view. And we know, of course, as we look at Scripture... <coughs> That the word of God written, we know that the words themselves are important. And so it's not just general ideas. Ideas are important. But it's the actual words themselves, each of which is inspired as we look at Scripture. And so it is the words themselves, which again comes back to the point of making sure that you are skilled, that that the person is expert in terms of understanding and interpreting and applying it. Well, we have here then the address by Artaxerxes. Xerxes was the fifth monarch since Cyrus the Great to rule over Persia, or today we would say the nation of Iran. He was the fifth monarch since Cyrus the Great to rule over Persia. Now, Artaxerxes was not particularly a dynamic ruler, uh, but nevertheless, he was the one sitting on the throne. 
Ironically, did you notice this in verse 12? He calls himself king of kings. He may not have been the most dynamic, but uh, uh, he certainly wasn't uh, modest, was he? King of kings. And of course, this reminds us, does it not, of the title or the, uh, the wording that is applied to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called One Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. My friends, there is one person in history and only one who can really be called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he's kind of a proud ruler, not modest, but nevertheless, this letter, notice again, is written to the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. And so there is this, even in this introduction to this letter, there is a recognition, a recognition of who Ezra was as the servant of the Most High. Now, there were other people involved uh, in terms of this, the, the Jews, all those who were willing, and their priests and Levites, and also Persian officials. Um, verse uh, 14, whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors. We could say this is sort of like his cabinet, sort of the, like the cabinet officials. Like today we have Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense and Attorney General and so forth. Well, here there were these seven counselors like a cabinet and then also there were the treasures, the treasurers beyond the river. Verse 21, I issue a decree to all the treasurers, those officials who are in the region beyond the river and so forth. And that leads us then, as we look at this decree, to consider the help that was issued in this decree. The first thing is, verse 13, was permission to go back permission to go back. I issue a decree that all of those, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And so the king gave permission. That was very important as part of this preparation for his Ezra returning. Notice there are four, it, it appears that there were four kinds of gifts so first of all, verse 15, whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. So first of all, from the king and his counselors, from the king and his cabinet officials, they are giving for the support of the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Then the beginning of verse 16, and where is all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon? And it appears that this is from non-Jews in Babylon. They say Gentiles, other than the king and the counselors. Now, anyone else who's heard of the king, who's, who, that is say, uh, heard of the, the great king, of the Yahweh, who's heard of the great God of heaven, anyone that would like to offer as well. And then verses 16, verse 16b and c, along with the free will offering of the people and the priest, they are to be freely offered for the high in Jerusalem. And finally, from the king's treasure house, verses 20 and following. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers. Whatever uh, um, 
uh, you, they may require of you. Let it be done diligently. Verse 22, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescription. Don't even have to take note of how much. Whatever is command and, and so forth. So here we find, here we find then, all of the port from all of these different people and indeed from the, from the king's official treasure house. Oh, there's something else here though too. And that is exemption from taxation. Exemption from taxation. Verse 24. Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, nethanim, or servants of this house of God. All temple personnel were to be exempt from taxation, which again is a form of support for, we would say, for the church. Now, this, interestingly, is the universal model, is it not? It was so in Israel. It was so in Egypt. You remember, not the church, but in terms of that false worship, that the priestly class in Egypt was not subject to taxation during the time, you remember, of Joseph. And also, in Europe and America, not in terms of necessarily not taxing individuals to, to uh, pay taxes, but nevertheless, a principle here that the church is not subject to the state. It is not subject to the state, particularly with regard to taxes. This is one of the reasons why uh, it is problematic, for example, when churches incorporate. We did not incorporate, because when you incorporate, you bring yourself under the civil government. You become a creature of the state. You live by the corporation, you die by the corporation. And there are other things as well, where the church has sometimes, where, where the state has tried to get the church to pay taxes, even for example, social security taxes and so forth. But that is not the historic position. You know the old Supreme Court uh, decision a couple hundred years ago, McCulloch versus Maryland, the power to tax is the power to destroy. And so the church has always historically been exempt, as an institution at least, from government interference and from government taxation. And that's the principle that you find here in terms of verse 24. So exemption from taxation. But notice also the civil law, the appointment of people in verse 25. So it talks here about magistrates, magistrates, Presumably, this magistrate would have been a social tribunal, a social judge for cases of customary law. And then judges would have been a royal in which the state is particularly interested. That is to say, with regard to loyalty to the king. Did you notice the power that is given to Ezra here, interestingly? And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom... Set magistrates and judges who may were in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. And so we find the jurisdiction then over all the people in that trans river area and teach those who do not know the law. And then we find the punishment. And again, this is extraordinary, is it not? Verse 26, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Now here we find in, in that these are in decreasing order 
of severity, decreasing order of severity. So first, death. So that's, that's the worst thing, obviously, death. Uh, but then also banishment, that is to say to be expelled from the area, or confiscation of goods, taking your, your wealth away, or imprisonment. Now, these were penalties by the state of Persia for violations of God's law. That's what it says, verse 26. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him. Now, one thing that we can ask as we think about the law, law and punishment, law and order, does this imply that different penalties are kosher for today? Quite possibly, that we can have a a gradation degree of penalty. Uh, But in any case, at the very least, there is an implicit approval of the idea of penalties as a protection, as a shield uh, in terms of the king, to be sure, but also in terms of the people themselves. Now notice the ends in view here, the ends in view with regard to this decree. First of all, the offerings themselves, verse 17, now therefore be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And so we see the offerings themselves. But also notice verse 18, that there is something about the glory of God which is at stake here. Whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. And so here we have the use of the silver and gold after the will of your God, following his commands. And we find this as well in verse 23. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it, be dilig- let it diligently be done for the house or the temple of the God of heaven. And here we have, if we could use a theological term just for a moment, what is referred to as the regulative principle of worship the regulative principle of worship. That is to say, the idea that all the particular items or elements or practices of worship, all of them come under God's direct command. So if he commands us to do something, we do it. If he does not command us to do something, we don't. Not if he forbids it, but if he doesn't command it, we don't. And that's what we find here. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. This is all part of the glory of God in terms of his establishing his worship as he has commanded. Notice also in this regard what is the penalty for that, for not doing that. For why should there be wrath. Why should there be anger? For God is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. But notice something also. It's it's the king that is talking here, right? So why should there be wrath against the realm of the king, against the state, against the kingdom? And not just in terms of the kingdom, but also the next generation, the the king and his sons. And so there was concern about making sure that in in the establishment of the worship here with regard to the temple, concern that it be done properly because otherwise they might be subject to divine anger or wrath, and so the glory of God in terms of this. So those are the things with regard to the preparations, 
preparation for Ezra's return. The godly descendants, Ezra himself, the plan and the decree by Artaxerxes. And now secondly, we see the people of Ezra's return. We've already mentioned the various classes that are, met, that are in our text. Um, well, first of all, it talks about some of the children of Israel, and then it talks specifically the priest, the Levites, the singers, these would be the temple choir, the porters, the ones that, is, that would guard the door, the Nethanims, those are temple servants, but not Jewish, like Gibeonites, for example. And then in verse 28, again, we have the idea of, of uh, the very end, and I, where Ezra says, and I gathered leading men, or chief men of Israel, to go up with me. So it's a whole cross-section, is it not? Everyone, as it were, is involved. Matter of fact, as we think about this, remember, we're 57 years from when the temple had been rebuilt. We're 458 BC. So this is now a this is now the second act. This is now a new generation, or maybe two generations later. But all these people then that were coming back into the land under Ezra's direction were people who were willing. Were people who were willing. And it reminds us, does it not, of the 110th Psalm, Psalm 110, where we read, Your people, shall, verse 3, shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. A willing people in the day of thy power, shall come to thee. And so we are reminded, are we not, of the fact that we must follow Christ. We must follow him wholeheartedly. We must follow him willingly, even as we sang from Psalm 86 today, unite my heart, thy name, to fear. Now, that leads me to the two points of application. So the first point of application is this. Follow Ezra's example of being a diligent student of the law of God. Follow his example of being a careful, a diligent student of the law of God. And of course, in saying that, we need to be careful. This is not a textbook. Because if we are really going to be a careful student of the law of God, it needs to be not just a matter of the mind, if I can put it this way, but a matter of the heart. There has to be a willingness. There has to be a love. As we will sing at the close of our service, after the benediction, as a closing doxology, oh, how... I love thy law. It is my study all the day. And so follow Ezra's example. How many times? I'll confess. I'll, I'll offer my self-confession here. How many times have I read scripture as a duty rather than as a love? And so... If we're really going to be a careful student of the law of God, it's not just the carefulness, but it is also must be accompanied by that love for the Lord of the law. And then finally, be instructed regarding church-state relations. Be instructed, be aware, be instructed regarding church-state relations. We've already mentioned exemption from of the church from all taxation, or indeed we could say from all internal uh, interference by the civil magistrate. And yet, at the same time, did you notice as we've been going along here, that we do have the enforcement of God's law by the civil magistrate. 
we have the enforcement of the law of God by the civil magistrate. <clears throat> Verse 26, whoever will not observe the law of your king, let judgment be executed Italy on him. And that also implies, by the way, uh, with regard to worship, with regard to worship. That's why the Westminster Larger Catechism, dealing with the second commandment, question answer 108, uh, talks about the, uh, the fact uh, that the civil magistrate uh, is to remove all monuments of idolatry. Now, you know, we have seen, now think about this. Right now, when you don't have that position, what do you end up with? You end up with Satanism. That's what we're seeing in our society. We're seeing, literally, statues to false gods being put up in our major cities. That's what we're seeing. There is no neutrality. You're either for Christ or you're against him. And the government is either for Christ or is against him. And so we find here then the enforcement of God's law even with regard to worship. And in that conjunction then, the support of true worship. Again, Westminster Larger Catechism, now question and answer 191. We pray, thy kingdom come. What do we pray for? Among other things, that the civil magistrate would countenance and maintain, would would uh, be face-to-face, as it were, countenance, would countenance the, and, and maintain, support the true religion. Now, we find this principle throughout Scripture. In Psalm, or this reality, if you will, in Psalm 45. In uh, Psalm 45, speaking about the king, speaking about King Jesus, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O mighty one, with thy glory and thy majesty. And you come down to verse 12. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. And so the heathen kings then were called upon to give honor to the God of Israel even if they don't recognize it as their duty, it is their duty to countenance and maintain the true religion. And as a matter of fact, the king himself was willing to help these vassals, if you will, these servants of his. With regard to this, this idea of church-state relations, the first is, did you notice that King Artaxerxes respected Ezra and granted him favor because of his holding to the law of God. That's what you find here. Verse, look at verse 10. We'll deal more with this, Lord willing, next week. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is all, but but notice, according to the good hand of his God upon him, for Ezra had prepared his heart. And also, but then if you go up to verse 6, he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. There is a connection then. You see that Ezra wasn't saying, well... You have your God, we have our God. No. He was saying clearly, I am a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, the true and living God. He wasn't pussyfooting around in terms of this. He was, say, he was declaring clearly the will. He wasn't afraid to do that. And as a matter of fact, the monarch respected Ezra and granted him favor precisely because of his emphasis upon and his holding to the law of God. And the final thing I want to say in this regard is this. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. It is King Jesus 
who mediatorily rules over everything. And that's what we find here, again, in so many places of Scripture. This is what we find. It is King Jesus who is sovereignly directing all these events. It is King Jesus who was sovereignly stirring up the people by means of his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, so that the people would reinstitute the temple, would renovate it, would bring it to completion, so that those sacrifices could be offered, so that these people then under Ezra would come back into the land and all preparing for Jesus' own coming into the world, and ultimately so he could die for our sins at the cross. And so, my friends, it is Jesus who is in whose hands the, the heart of the king is. He turns it like the water courses. Proverbs 21, he turns it like the water courses. It is the Lord Jesus who's directing all these things, and at this point in history, directing all these things so that he could come and die and so that then he could rise again from the dead and be ascended into heaven where he is ruling right now. He is the one who is sovereign over the church. He is the one who is sovereign over the state. And both institutions owe him allegiance. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take these words and apply them to our hearts. We pray, O God, for the day and the knowledge of the glory of thyself would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray for the day when the nations would learn war no more. We pray for the day when the nations would flow to Jerusalem and would recognize who is the sovereign ruler. And so, O oh God, we ask that that would be the case. May we see in our own nation and in our own day our rulers giving their ultimate allegiance to Jesus. And so be pleased to accomplish these things through us, thy servants, but in our spirit and the word of truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.